Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Humility is the posture for grace. Tonight, I want to explore humility with you guys. Um, and specifically the way that humility allows us to live life in the kingdom. Um, or to put it the way that we have it here on the wall, uh, the way that humility allows us to exalt our God, the way that humility allows us to be equipped for the ministry of the saints by our God, and the way that humility allows us to engage uh, each other as believers and the world that we're in. Um, a lack of humility can keep us from any one of those stages. Uh, in that cycle. Um, If we're too proud to praise him or too arrogant to acquire what he's offering us, um, or maybe too puffed up to proclaim the word that he's given us, uh, it can leave us feeling empty and distant from God. Scripture says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I find that to be true in my life, and I think that some of you can attest to the same. Um, If we are Closed off for the opposite reason, it has the same spiritual effect. Um, like, if we believe we're closed off to him because of a low self-esteem, a self-hatred, uh, we will be too timid to approach the throne of grace, too ashamed to accept his gifts. The flaw in our thinking there is uh, that we are, based on our actions, deserving of his grace, right? Or not deserving of his grace, The main text that I'll be using tonight is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, If you guys want, for extra credit, you can put a finger in uh, Psalm 119. And uh, we're going to touch there as well. Um, Let's let's just read through uh, Philippians real quick. And uh, I'm going to pray before I do that. God, I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray that you would... Open our hearts to what you have to say through these words. Um, I have spent time preparing um, in prayer with your spirit, but I pray that um, we would all receive what you have to say to us this evening. Um, We thank you for being here with us, and uh, we love you. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 1 there, uh, Paul says, Therefore, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Thank you, Jesus. I once heard verse 13 used to define grace. Uh, Pastor Jim Cottrell uh, spoke in 10th hour and uh, he shared with us, grace is God working in you to give you both the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. And I have found this to be true as I work with that definition in my life. God's grace is his unmerited favor that I, the chief of sinners, I'm stealing that from Paul, but I think that exemplifies the chiefness of my sinning. You're not supposed to steal, you guys. Um, would that I would be forgiven of all my unrighteousness by the payment of Christ's blood. That's not only grace, it's unreasonable grace. It's, uh, it doesn't make any sense. It's not forgiveness for losing a library book or like at the gas station when they pay the last little bit of change from the change <laughs> bucket. That's not even grace. They have the money right there. Um, this is something I could never pay on my own, right? And the person who gave me the gift to pay a debt that was killing me is somebody that I am inspired to get to know, to repay, to um, obey. And his grace not only causes that desire in me, it empowers me to do what pleases him. I cannot receive this grace, though, without first accepting my need for it. Until I acknowledge that there is distress in the flesh, discomfort of hate, disunity in the spirit, uh, aversion and cruelty. How can I turn to Jesus for the consolation in Christ, the comfort and love, the unity in the spirit, the affection and mercy? This is where humility becomes useful. Famous Calvary Chapel pastor Richard Perea, famous among friends, <laughs> um, once said, humility is just agreeing with God. Since the fall of man, mankind has been believing the lie that was whispered to Eve. This will make you like God. But we're not. We're not like him. Agreeing with God begins agreeing with agreeing that he is God and we are not. Being comfortable with the fact that we're not perfect and he still loves us. We don't need to be perfect because he is. We need to be humbly dependent on him. We are neither qualified by our ability to keep the law nor disqualified by our inherent lawlessness. Our justification is found only in Jesus Christ. Humility is a pretty finely tuned attribute in the believer. Uh, too little can leave you teetering because of the size of your head, uh, yet too much corrupts just as badly, resulting in self-hatred that can immobilize a believer. Um, I'm not good enough to pray. I'm not good enough to be loved, that kind of stuff. Again, pride in your flesh would say that you don't need God either because of the lie that you have all you need or that it's weakness to need. Humility is agreeing with God, or I can put it another way, like it's living in the light. God only deals in the light where the truth is known. Uh, Nicholas Harnan wrote in his book, The Heart's Journey Home, brokenness is what needs to be accepted. Unfortunately, this 
is what we tend to reject. Here, the seeds of a corrosive self-hatred can take root. This, painfully vulner- this painful vulnerability is the characteristic feature of our humanity that most needs to be embraced in order to restore our human condition to a healed state. That is an idea that I'd like to explore here tonight. In view of Christ's example of humility and love and grace on the cross, humility in us means acknowledging that we lack, that we fall short, that we need, that we're incapable of good on our own. But it isn't just an appropriately low view of self, an acceptance of our limited capacity for righteousness. Humility is also a determined dependency on God, our Father. Jesus exemplified that in his relationship with his Father. We must depend on our Father for the objectives as well as the abilities in our life. Humility allows us to receive those things from him, those things being like outworkings of the great and powerful thing that is his grace for us. God working in us both to do and to, to will and to do <laughs> according to his good pleasure. Um, let's go to the Psalms here. Psalm 119, if you'll join me. I think this is a good illustration of honest humility leading to grace. Um, beginning in verse 1, David says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. And then verses 5 and 6. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. There is such a desire in David to be in line with God's law. But he knows that he is not naturally, that is of his own willpower, able to keep the law as God commands it. And thus he is ashamed. He says, oh, that, I, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all of your commandments. The 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich said, our courteous Lord does not want his servants to despair because they fall often and grievously for our falling does not hinder him in loving us. Even if David knows intellectually God's love for him hasn't changed. We see later in verses 25 and 28 that his ability to believe God's love for him has diminished. Like he can know it, but in his heart, he doesn't quite feel it. Let's read those verses. 25 says, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. 28, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. These words are expressing a deep sense of trouble in his soul. Like he's falling apart because he can't keep the law as he sees it from God. But I think he finds the answer in verse 29. It says, remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. There's something so powerful about the honesty of humility. When we live humbly in the light, agreeing with God, we accept that we are not perfect. He is then able to show us just how much he loves us how much grace he has for us. Remove from us the way of lying, God, and grant us your law graciously. Grace does not ever excuse the truth. That's not grace. That's manipulation, evil, cheap grace. (laughs) I, 
I don't like bringing up cheap grace in the context of grace because I think it takes away. We're talking about two completely different things. One is a lie and one is the truth that we are how we are and God loved us and sent his son for us. Brennan Manning said, it takes a profound conversion to accept that God is relentlessly tender and compassionate towards us just as we are. Not in spite of our sins and faults, that would not be total acceptance, but with them. God does not condone or sanction evil. He does not withhold his love because there is evil in us, though. Grace sees you as you are and loves the real you, what you bring to the table. And it's grace that frees you from the bondage of your sin and your shame. God demonstrated his own agape love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Let's go back to Philippians verse 1, and we'll start breaking that down. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. We know, sitting here tonight, that there is consolation in Christ for the humble. There is comfort in his love. There is fellowship of the Spirit. There is affection and mercy for the humble in the light. Each of these things are manifested to us when we agree to God's light shining in our, on our souls, Right? When we are exposed before him, just as we are, not all put together as we may want to appear, but as we truly are on the inside. It is there that we can finally reach, uh, that we can finally receive the consoling touch of the Holy Spirit and the loving comfort of his affection and mercy. Only when we open our eyes that we've kept squeezed shut to all that we are, as he gently reveals it to us, will we be able to see the extent of his love for us. First John chapter one, verses six through 10 say, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I believe that the prodigal son is also a good picture of this type of humility as a posture for grace. He asked for his inheritance before his father passed away. So that's a pretty big social faux pas. Um, basically saying that he wished his dad was dead already so that he could inherit his wealth. Then he squandered that wealth in Vegas uh, with no regard for his future. He didn't make a single good investment with it. He lost it all. He didn't save. He sinned. <laughs> he didn't gamble. He just lit his wealth on fire. <laughs> And when the fuse had run out on that time bomb of that lifestyle, he found his need. He was humbled. He understood that his father had a very fundamental understanding of the wrong he had done. He did it to his father. So there was no value in his return to the father, monetarily speaking or emotionally speaking. 
if the father was looking for relational restitution. Yet his father welcomes him home with open arms, giving more to him, not waiting to see if he's really sorry. The humility is expressed by the son simply in the outstretched hand when he returns home, knowing that he needs and his father supplies. In verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Have the same love, being of, one of, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Then Paul says this, fulfill my joy, right? We talked about all the reasons in this rhetorical section about the things that we find in Christ. And Paul says, so fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And he doesn't just mean agreeing with everybody, right? <laughs> I've spent this week disagreeing with some people, my fiance, to be specific. Um, and it's not necessarily about agreeing. This, what Paul is saying, is to have the same mind as Christ. So we may disagree as human beings are want to do, but we can always agree on the point that we are saved by this grace because we are in need of this grace. Matthew Henry writes about this verse, the great gospel precept passed upon us, that is to love one another. This is the law of Christ's kingdom. The lesson of his school, the livery of his family. This Paul represents by saying, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We are of a like mind when we have the same love. When we are humble and honest, we are able to receive grace from God and then give grace to others. Only when I recognize the unconditional nature of the love of God can I offer it to others free from conditions and contingencies. Verses 3 and 4, let Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the story that I think corroborates this point. Uh, chapter 12, he had been given a thorn in the flesh. He pled with the Lord to take it away three times. Um, God replied that, my grace, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul continues, most gladly I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. John Foreman put it lyrically, the wound is where the light shines through. There's a story of Thomas Merton. Uh, he's a famed spiritual guide. Um, and he told a monk one day, a fellow monk, if I make anything of the fact that I'm Thomas Merton, I am dead. He said, if you make anything of the fact that you're in charge of the pig barn, you're dead. His solution, quit keeping score altogether and surrender ourselves with all our sinfulness to God, who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child redeemed by Christ. 
I believe that the inclination to keep score comes from a mistrust or distrust of God. Um, our mistrust is that his grace is freely given. Surely we have to do something to earn it, right? I think that it feels safer if we deserve it because then it's ours. But he truly has freely forgiven us. Praise God, because we could never earn it, right? Our distrust in him is that his love is unfailing. As we see failure and falling in our own lives and hearts, we fear that we're not allowed to rely on God but it's this very failing and falling that is used to turn us back to reliance on him. God uses the brokenness. Whatever it is that you're struggling with now, he is fully prepared to use it for his glory. Do you believe that? Some of us need to hear that as the pressures of our life seem to be besting us. Maybe it's a fight you keep having with your spouse, a child who's proving difficult to instruct, you're struggling to trust God in the face of uncertainty in some area in your life. Or maybe you're giving in to temptation. He wants to show you grace and work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Remember David, remove from me the way of lying and grant to me your law graciously. One of the lies we fall into is that we must bring God glory on our own. He will bring it through us to himself. Some of us are struggling with burdens that we've held onto our whole lives. Something we'd rather just hang on to until we get into the grave, right? Paul says, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. Does holding on to crushing guilt until you die because you're afraid of how people will react count as selfish ambition? It does. Please hear me. There is consolation in Christ. There is comfort of love. There is affection and mercy. God has a new purpose for the very things that the enemy has been using to keep him, keep you from him. The purpose is always to bring you closer to him and others, right? Please let him break those chains of fear and doubt off of you today. Confess and be healed. Live in the light today, humbly agreeing with God and watch the way that the gifts God has given your brothers and sisters and you can be used to heal and to glorify God. Remove from me the way of lying and grant to me graciously your law. Another lie is that God can't bring glory to himself through us and our brokenness. He will bring glory to himself through us. Verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Uh, Jesus had it all together. He, was, he had it made. He was sitting at the right hand of the father, uh, probably enjoying it. I'm thinking, um, he gave it all up because he loves us to come down here. And maybe I'm talking too slow over things that we all know, but I think that they're important. <laughs> um, he suffered the greatest humiliation, culturally speaking, but also like, I'm pretty sure in the whole world ever, <laughs> but definitely at that time in his culture, 
he was uh, said to be blaspheming God the Father, and he was hung, battered and bloodied and naked on the cross to die under that accusation. So that's what he was. We know him to be our saviors. We know him to be the son of God. But in that moment, he was nothing. And he was judged as such by the court of public opinion, which I don't know. I think we can kind of attest to that in our society today, that that's really the one that counts. (laughs) In the moment, that's the one that counts. But it didn't change his identity. He chose to obey his father's command. He suffered and humbled himself for this immense sacrifice in appearance, but it did not change his identity as his father's son. At any point, he could have turned, but he refused to do that because he knew that his father had a great purpose in this death. Let's go to verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later, defeating death. The debt that we all owed for our sin was paid. You're a sinner condemned to die until you believe that God sent his son to pay for your debt so that you don't have to die now, but you get to be God's son. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Um, You became a child of his and he gave you the same work that he gave his son. So now you can live in the light. That's where we meet Jesus in the light. You can live there because you know that he has taken the condemnation for your sin and defeated it. There is redemption in our every failure. There is life in every death offered by a God who uses the weakest things to beat the strong and the foolish to beat the wise. And now every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, Paul says, to the glory of God the Father. When we know he has forgiven us and redeemed us, what else can we say But glory to God in the highest. Jesus is Lord. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I believe To work out one's salvation is to live humbly and openly with God about the way that he shows you grace. Then you will know his grace and be given the desire and be empowered to do according to his good pleasure. Um, I'm way off on time, I think. I have 13 more minutes. Is that okay? Okay. Well, I want to close with the words from this hymn. Um, and I think that they tie in nicely. Also, there's a couple verses I didn't know. That's how it is with every 
him, I think. I'm like, there's more? <laughs> it always happened. Like, my grandma was the pianist for my grandpa. He was a preacher. And, um, and she came over and played hymns, uh, I don't know, maybe six months ago at our house. And uh, that was happening with a lot of songs. I was like, amazing, Grace. And then we got to the second one. I was like, I don't know any of these. I don't know this one by heart. <laughs> it says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. God, I pray that the things of this world would grow dim in the light of your glory and grace, that you would shine your love into our lives in the areas that we have tried to keep hidden from others, from you, God, from ourselves even, that you would draw us closer to you so that we could uh, live out the grace that you've given us in the world that you've given us to show your grace to. Um, I pray for each one of us here that we would... uh, be able to live humbly, openly, honestly, agreeing with you in the light about the way that we are, knowing that you have given us the grace to be how we are and you will complete the work that you have started in each one of us, God. I thank you for that promise and I thank you for all these promises that you have given us in the word. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, share with my family here at CCNE. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.